So science fiction writers and, um, to a lesser extent, futurists, are, uh, when they write about the future, they're really talking about the present. Inevitably, they're talking about the present. Even when they don't know they're talking about the present, they're talking about the present. Uh, let me step back one step here. For those of you who aren't native English speakers, I am a very fast talker. You have a dispensation for me, if I talk too quickly, to do this, and I will slow down. Um, sorry. So, science fiction writers, futurists, and um, other people who purport to be thinking about the future are inevitably thinking about the present. Uh, one of my favorite examples is a famous science fiction writer named Isaac Asimov, uh, who began writing in the 30s and was one of the great old men of science fiction, one of the founding fathers and who is perhaps best known for his stories about something called the Foundation. Uh, the Foundation was a, uh, a secret society that gathered together and figured out what humanity's destiny should look like, and then set in motion a series of controls so that they could establish the future of humanity, nudging it here and there through the next several thousand years to save it from itself. Uh, now, Asimov thought that he was writing about uh, a burgeoning hard science of sociology, a quantifiable sociology that would allow you to predict the motion of societies in the same way that we predict the motions of planets and comets. But really, looking back, it seems pretty clear that where Asimov's inspiration came from and what his future society most clearly resembled or closely resembled were things like the New Deal of the Roosevelt uh, administration in America, something that had been a great interest to him as an immigrant to America from the uh, former Soviet Union, um, in which a group of, of wise people gathered around a table and decided what the future of the nation should be to lift it out of depression and set in motion a series of interventionist policies to guide the course of society. And it seems that Asimov felt like this was going to be the future, even though it was, in fact, his present. Now, this... Um, this writing about the future, writing about the present in the guise of writing about the future is even more present in, um, in a related field, not science fiction literature, but science fiction film and television, which is really best understood as a different genre with very different constraints and very different trappings. Um, it is less concerned with extrapolative rigor, that is to say, uh, setting down a series of precepts and then setting out a series of steps that take you forward from those precepts into some future that's imagined, and more with feeling futuristic, that is to say, delivering the cinematic experience of being in the future rather than the intellectual experience of envisioning it. So get, let me give you some examples here. Uh, we're all familiar with the Star Wars franchise. Um, Star Wars, when it first came out, was hailed as, um, as a new, uh, new, new direction in realistic portrayals of the future. The realism that was hailed about it was the grit, the dirtiness. It was, it was a future in which the spaceships had, um, had stained floors and dents, and um, in which it was no longer the seamless, curvilinear future of something like 2001 or Rollerball, but rather a future that rather resembled the present, uh, in that it was, um, it was replete with the stains and pockmarks that indicated that people inhabited it, that it wasn't a mere museum piece or set, but rather a world. But Star Wars was not particularly concerned with realism and its technology. Uh, take, for example, my favorite, uh, R2-D2, a robot who is artificially intelligent, a robot who is uh, in possession of a rather impressive arsenal of uh, weapons and interfaces, 
who can um, connect himself to the Death Star and uh, pwn its computer systems, penetrate its firewall, and take over the system, but who has not been fitted with a $3 voice uh, chip, a $3 text-to-speech chip, as we've seen in many of the robots here in, in RoboExotica. Um, there is nothing particularly rigorous about a future in which we build robots that are uh, as intelligent as, as us or more, but don't bother to give them the, the capacity to speak except in comedic Harpo Marx whistles. Um, this was more concerned with feeling like a future than being like a future. But even more uh, tr uh, untrue to the idea of an extrapolated future was the idea that there is a military conflict over resources in a, in a universe in which faster-than-light travel is possible and, indeed, quotidian. Um, there, it, it's hard to imagine what resource you would fight over in a universe in which you can break the speed of light. Uh, it is an infinite universe, after all. Uh, one presumes that practically every element you can imagine is present in infinite abundance. If someone wants the... Uh, uranium you're squatting on, or steel, or coal, or hydrogen, or whatever it is, why wouldn't you just pick another spot somewhere else in the universe and go there and get it from them, since it seems to cost nothing and take no time to go anywhere in the universe? Um, even worse uh, on the interstellar travel front are the uh, poor benighted crew of the Starship Enterprise, as envisioned by, um, by Gene Roddenberry, uh, and then subsequently by a series of people operating that franchise on behalf of Paramount and its corporate masters. Um, the, Star War, the Star Trek franchise was particularly bizarre in the way that the technology was handled. For one thing, we have in, in, from the very beginning in Star Trek faster-than-light radios and um, uh, transporter beams that can disassemble human beings, turn them into a series of bytes, and then reassemble them uh, in arbitrary locations by uh, apparently by doing something like entangling the particles at some, at some distant spot. One wonders then why the Enterprise had a crew at all rather than just some transporters and a radio link. Um, it would be something perhaps the size of a soccer ball, and it would uh, travel faster than the speed of light to arrive at some distant rock that it wanted to explore. When it reached it, it would beam copies, multiple copies of the uh, most efficient crew member that was president in the Foundation, 27 Captain Kirks, and they would all be beamed onto the surface of the planet where they would have an adventure. If any of them should die while on the planet or meet with any misfortune like a paper cut or uh, a bad uniform or even if he just really needed to take a crap, rather than slowing down the mission so that he could drop his drawers and find a, a space rock to, to squat behind, you would just beam an empty colon Kirk back down. Um, when the Kirks had completed their mission, you would annihilate them into the transporter, beam a different merge of their experience back to Mother Earth, and, um, and proceed on. You could have an infinite number of these um, soccer balls floating around the galaxy. You could explore it all in parallel, and um, you would save a lot of wear and tear on red shirts. Um, so, for all that, the um, future that we envision in, these, uh, in, in filmic and televisual science fiction may be, in some senses, more realistic, or at least more true, than the future of science fiction as written in books. Science fiction writers often are possessed of the conceit 
that they are actually writing about the future and will protest quite vociferously that they are, in fact, writing about the future, whereas filmic and televisual writers of science fiction are generally quite upfront about the idea that they're just writing about the present in space trappings. Um, Gene Roddenberry very famously always described his, his creation, Star Trek, as wagon train in space, wagon train being a famous Western television show of the era. So why does science fiction films, why do science fiction films feel futuristic? What is it about these films that are filled with the present uh, that makes them feel futuristic? Well, I think it's because we ourselves imagine the future by a process that's very similar to the way that uh, the writers of filmic science fiction imagine the future. There's a very good book uh, about the way that we imagine the future called Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert, a psychologist at um, Harvard University. And Daniel Gilbert uh, writes about uh, the way first that we construct the past. Uh, He says, well, you know, we can see experimentally that we don't actually remember much about what recently happened to us. Our our brain is very selective about what it stores. Just little threads, little bits and pieces of what we've experienced are stored in our brain. That leaves lots of space for other things that might happen in the future. And then when we try to imagine or or remember back on what happened, what I ate for breakfast this morning or what it was like the first time I fell in love, those first those threads that we've bothered to store of that experience are taken and woven together into a kind of tapestry that's then elaborated on it because it'll have big holes in it. We won't remember all the details. So to fill in those details, we'll elaborate on them by grabbing bits and pieces of whatever's handy. And what's handy in great abundance at all times is the present. We have a, a, a rather large supply of the present right at our fingertips no matter where we are, no matter when it is. And so when we try to imagine the past, we, we generally mostly fill it with the present. Um, so experimentally, you can verify this by doing things like taking a bunch of people and feeding them a really delicious lunch and asking them while they're eating lunch what their breakfast was like. And the people who are eating a delicious lunch will tell you uh, at a, at way above the uh, average that they had a delicious breakfast. And the people who are eating a terrible lunch will tell you that breakfast was terrible as well. Because we don't really remember a whole lot about our meals unless they're truly extraordinary. Breakfasts are rarely extraordinary meals. And so um, we just saved a few threads of it. And that tapestry has very large holes in it. And we need to fill them in with something. And if we happen to have our mouth full of something very tasty, that's what we'll fill it with. And if we happen to have our mouth filled with something not very tasty at all, that's what we'll patch the holes in the tapestry with. Um, This is also how we construct the future, of course. Only the future doesn't even have the advantage of being grounded with threads of something that's actually happened. We start by trying to imagine the future through a, a brief and, and not particularly rigorous exercise in uh, future forecasting, but we necessarily have gigantic holes left in the future. And so then we try to fill, patch it with whatever we've got lying around, and that, of course, is always the present. Uh, very famously, um, uh, the uh, uh, Alexander Graham Bell believed that the most important function the, tele- the telephone would fill would be to bring opera to the living rooms of the world. Um, he felt this because um, what he had lying around in the present was a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that uh, people paid money to go see and hear. And he thought, well, if I could transmit that at a distance, people would, would pay money for that too. And that's what I'll use my phone for. Um, he was filling his, his uh, future, his, his extrapolation with the, with, the, with the present. So there have been vogues in how we imagine the future that have been determined by our different presents in the years gone by. 
Um, probably the first kind of futurism that was in, in wide deployment was lapsarianism, this, uh, this biblical or Abrahamic idea. It actually goes back even to Babylonian times that um, world, the world was getting worse, uh, that we had fallen from grace, the garden was gone, the, t- the Tower of Babel had fallen, and that we would sink into a worse and worse quagmire uh, for it forever or until the end of the world. Indeed, um, there are some strains of Orthodox Judaism that hold that no rabbi can ever overturn a, ra- a, a, ru- a rabbinical ruling from before his time, because by definition, any rabbi living in an earlier era is living closer to the perfection of the Garden of Eden, and all rabbis who live beyond that can't possibly be as close to perfection as the rabbis who, who, who preceded them. So this lapsarianism, um, it's kind of easy to understand how, how it arises, especially in faiths where the mythologies are being constructed by um, bearded uh, uh, and, um, uh, and uh, uh, serious elders. Um, once you hit whatever the lifespan is, you know, times decimal eight, so call it 35 if you're living in, in you know, ancient biblical times or today, once you hit about you know, 60 or 70, once you hit that age, it becomes really easy to believe that the world is going to be a worse and worse place. After all, didn't things used to taste better? Didn't you used to be able to hear more? Weren't the smells more vivid? Weren't the people more beautiful? Weren't things more readily understood back in those golden era, in that golden era? Weren't the children more obedient? when you were a child. Um, It's really easy to believe that lapsarianism is the order of the day, that the universe is unwinding as your own body begins to unwind and to uh, imagine that we are headed towards uh, a worse and worse worse worse, uh, universe. The counter-narrative to lapsarianism begins more or less with the Enlightenment, and this is the idea of progressivism, the idea that things are getting better and better and better. Um, and, and this arises in a period of great change, uh, the Enlightenment and its uh, discovery of a new technology, the, uh, the scientific method, which is a technology for understanding knowledge, uh, meant that um, each person who invented something could then uh, have that invention be built on by someone else. And it's really easy to feel like that is not merely change, not a cycle, but rather progress, that it's going upwards and upwards and upwards. It's easy to understand that in the context of um, standing on the shoulders of giants or each of us laying one brick in a great wall that, that constitutes the edifice of our knowledge. Progress becomes a natural metaphor for understanding the world and things are going to get better and better and better. But all systems have a boundary condition. Everything must come to an end, all good things and all bad things. So in the case of lapsarianism, Things will get worse and 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 worse, but eventually they'll run out of worse, right? Eventually there's none more worse. And when you reach none more worse, you have the apocalypse, right? That's, that's when the universe ends. And uh, the apocalypse is, a, is, is the only conceivable boundary condition for lapsarianism. Things just have to get worse until there's kind of, you know, the, the war between heaven and hell and then the system reboots or we go to heaven or something. Um, and, it's, and, and that has to follow from, from a lapsarian point of view. But progressivism has to have its own apocalypse too because if things get better and 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 better, eventually they've got to get so good that they just kind of pop like a balloon that's been overinflated. So what does the progressive 
apocalypse look like? Well, um, we have in written science fiction, I think, the first inklings of the progressive apocalypse. Uh, there's a very good science fiction writer named Werner Vinge, and uh, Werner coined the phrase the singularity, uh, by which he means uh, the time at which our model of the world breaks down when it tries to model a future that contains entities smarter than human. This is the uh, end of humanity and the end of history, the moment at which we stop being things that are recognizable as human, the moment at which we can stop having a dialogue with the future because the things that happen in the future will be inconceivable and incomprehensible to we uh, pre-singularity uh, ancestors, we, we proto-humans who inhabit the world before the singularity. Um, and, this, and this idea that we can't predict the future anymore once the singularity arrives is best understood as the progressive apocalypse, the moment at which things pop because they've become far too good. Um, and it models many contemporary phenomena. So if Vinji is not really writing about the future, what contemporary phenomena is he writing about? Well, for one thing, we have, um, we have uh, lots of contemporary breaks with history. Um, we have institutions that are crumbling under the onslaught of great change brought about by technology. So take, for example, the changes that are arising because the intuitive ideas of internet natives, people who are raised on the internet, are different from the intuitive ideas, the things that we accept as, as common knowledge of people who weren't raised on the internet. Um, copyright's a good example of this. It's a field that I do a lot of work in. Um, if you grew up with computers, uh, and if computers are, are everything to you, and you never know a time without computers, and computers are ubiquitous, and computers are cheap, and computers aren't particularly special, it's not a piece of specialized hardware, but something you can expect to find everywhere, then, of course, your intuition about computers is that because they are machines for copying things, that they will copy things. Right? That doesn't seem like an unreasonable conclusion to arrive at if you spend your whole life around the world's most perfect copying machine. Now, people who grow up before the computer are apt to believe that copying machines have some means by which, we can, by which they can be restrained because copying machines are elaborate, they're expensive, and they're off limits to many people, and so they can be regulated. Um, and we say things like, buying a book does not confer the right to copy the book. Well, this is probably technically true as a matter of law. That buying the books have not confer conferred the right to copy the book. But the reason that it was easy to make this a matter of law for the last several centuries is the same reason that buying a book does not confer the right to etch it into the surface of the moon with a high-powered laser is an easy law to enact. It's unlikely that anyone will try to break it. And the people who do break it will be easy to find. Right? But once computers are everywhere and essentially free and not particularly special and in the hands of everyone, the idea that there will be some classes of bits that won't be copied by the world's most perfect bit copiers becomes less and less plausible and, the, uh, and, and in fact more and more ridiculous. And so you have the, the bizarre spectacle of, for example, the recording industry, who for the last 50-some years have been giving us sex, drugs, rock and roll, gangster rap, and so on, telling us that these uh, terrible computers and the industrialists who created them are corrupting the youth by teaching them to steal. Right? The people who gave us gangster rap are suddenly concerned about the moral character of the people who listen to it. So um, 
that's that's one example of 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 a of a singularity arising where you have two groups of people who essentially have nothing to say to each other anymore, no common basis for communication about really fundamental notions about how the world works. Another one is a favorite of mine, the uh, social networking service, or or as uh, I think it was Clay Shirky coined the term Yasness, yet another social networking service. So you have the the Friendster, the Six uh, Six Degrees, the MySpace, the the Doppler, the which isolator? Yes, thank you, and and so on. Yeah, and and all the rest of them. Um, uh, one of the um, inevitable consequences of joining a Yasness is that after a brief idenic period, when the only people who are in your friends list are people who are your friends, it rapidly becomes crufty and starts to accumulate people who aren't your friends but have some social mechanism by which they can compel you to describe you to, to describe them as your friends. So this might be your parents or it might be someone you don't like very much but have to see socially, or your boss, some coworkers, a friend from school that you never really liked very much and are glad to not be around anymore, but who you don't particularly want to offend and end a 25-year-long friendship. They get worse and worse and worse. Now, we old hands of the Internet, we, we um, boring old farts of the Internet who, who remember the dial-up modem days, when the yasness came about, we thought that one of the great crises of the Yasness was that there was no way to export your information from it. That you would get locked into Friendster and never be able to jump ship to the next version of Friendster because Friendster would own all those relationships between you and your pals. And we worked to find ways to interchange data between them in the hopes that they would adopt them. But I think that looking back on it and watching how young people actually use these networks, which is that after a while it gets kind of crufty, and rather than face the social awkwardness of going through and pruning their friends list, they just resign their account and jump over to the next service. They move from MySpace to Friendster, and shortly they'll move from Friendster to Bebo. And once they've finished um, turning Bebo into a littered landscape of, of uh, artificial friendships, they'll move on to somewhere else. Um, we, we thought that the problem was going to be migrating the data. It turns out that the last thing you want to do as you jump ship from one of these things is migrate your data. In fact, the whole point of leaving Friendster was to get away from your Friendsters so that you could once again have a profile that had nothing but friends in it. And very shortly, you will have to leave that space, and so on. Um, so uh, other ways in which we are having breaks with, uh, contemporary, with, with history and in which we are experiencing a singularity that Vinji is probably reflecting on as he writes about the, the present day in the guise of the future uh, is the plummeting cost of capital and networks. Um, so it used to be that making stuff and starting businesses was expensive. Uh, it used to be that you needed to raise a lot of money to go into business, you know, doing something global, for example. If you wanted to have customers all over the world, that would cost a lot of money. If you wanted to do stuff that involved servers, it would involve a lot of money. If you wanted to do stuff that involved high availability networks, it would involve a lot of money. These days, the largest expense in most technology startups is marketing, uh, because the cost of actually developing the technology has gotten so small that um, you have uh, an infinite field of competitors, and so you have to spend nigh infinite sums of money to make your technology heard above the rest of them. And so as a result, the uh, investors, the people who who have historically backed high-tech startups, are walking around with their pockets bulging with billions, unable to find anyone who needs them. Right? They, go to, they, they, they find themselves talking to tech startups and saying, well, we do a minimum investment out of our billion-dollar fund of $1 million in the angel round. And them saying, 
$1 million, my entire startup cost to date to get me, myself to revenue and half a million users was $10,000 in sweat equity. What am I going to do with your million dollars? How much of my company will you end up owning if you give me a million dollars? What I need is about 15 grand, right? Well, no one wants to spend a billion dollars in $15,000 increments. You'd be, you'd be spending for a long time. You would exhaust the due diligence hours remaining between now and the heat death of the universe. So as a result, you have a lot of people trying to figure out how to spend money and spending it really stupidly, dropping giant wads of money into technology businesses that hackers are building essentially for free. Um, other areas in which we are, we are finding uh, a gap that may represent the singularity, the Vingian singularity, uh, are the widening gaps between uh, the rich and poor and the idea that increasingly we have less and less to say to each other as the rich-poor gap gets wider and wider and wider. Uh, and obviously that's a trend that's been unfortunate and underway for, for some time now. Um, uh, James Hughes in Citizen Cyborg uh, proposes that we may soon face another one of these gaps that will make the rich-poor gap look quite small by comparison, and this is where he indulges again in some interesting bit of futurism, and that's um, the uh, old-young gap. Uh, Jim supposes that um, we will arrive at a time in which in vitro fertilization based on our uh, knowledge of the genome, will become the order of the day. And that means that from year to year, uh, the uh, likelihood of you falling uh, prey to some uh, genetic defect will decrease as we understand more and more about the genome, as we throw more and more cycles at the genome. And that means that the uh, quality of life gap between people, the biggest determinant of it may not be how much money you have, but what era you were born in. In other words, that being born 20 years after your parents may mean, or 25 or 30 or 35, may mean that there are 50 cancers that they'll be prone to that you'll never get, and 16 kinds of heart disease, and maybe um, a faulty memory, astigmatism, uh, keratoconus, uh, uh, bad knees, and a propensity to uh, take food off of other people's plates. And all of these things will have been flensed from your genome, which will mean that you will enjoy a much higher quality of life than, than your parents will, and changes that we make to the germline uh, are, are in, enshrine uh, classes of people in ways that make cha- uh, social classes look uh, particularly fluid and, and unimportant. Um, so the singularity is the boundary condition on progress. It's the point at which we reach the end of how much progress we can make. But what does that mean? Why is it important? Well, It's important to remember as we consider trendy and interesting ideas out of science fiction and futurism like the singularity that these are metaphorical and not predictive and that the alternative, the literal interpretation of futuristic predictions leads to dumb ideas. Some of you were at TOG show last night and I talked a little about um, William Gibson's idea of cyberspace. Um, William Gibson uh, freely admits that when he came up with the idea of cyberspace, he was not trying to predict a future. He was rather trying to speak metaphorically about uh, a space that seemed to be emerging in the technological world. He said it was the place that you seemed to go to when you had a telephone conversation or the place that video game players were trying to visit when they thrust their chests towards the consoles of the games that they were playing in arcades. Um, But a lot of people took him at his word and set out to develop Uh, metaphorical information spaces that were graphically represented as uh, high-resolution 3D worlds. That was um, largely a dead end, whereas the development of of cyberspaces that were metaphorical, um, uh, conversation spaces and so on, grew and grew and grew. Um, 
Another example of, of uh, uh, literal interpretation leading us down the garden path or leading us to disaster is the idea of the information economy. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, we were all convinced that we were leading up to an information economy because information technology was growing by leaps and bounds. And we assumed that in, an information economy would be like a coal economy. And in a coal economy, you buy and sell coal. So in an information economy, you buy and sell information. Well, buying and selling information in the way that you buy and sell coal means that you have to become, uh, it has to become progressively easier as information technology spreads to control information, right? To stop people from acquiring information without paying for it. And that turns out to be exactly wrong. The more information technology that you have, the harder it is to exclude people from information. The more people there are who have computers, who know how to use them, who know how to Google for the ripped version that's been put up as a torrent rather than having to even figure out how to break the DRM themselves, the harder it is to exclude people from information. And yet for 20 years now, we've been making information policy and economic policy grounded on the idea that the future of all our nation's economies was going to be in buying and selling information, not in being able to do anything but buy and sell information. So science fiction is great stuff. It's good art. It's important social commentary. But if it ever predicts the future, it will be an accident. Thank you. <laughs> Questions? Um, have you ever accidentally pre predicted the future? Uh, no, but I've done a lot of present predicting. So I've written a lot of stuff where I've taken a news story that I thought was kind of cool about the present day and might become a bigger story later and written about it as though it hadn't happened yet in science fiction and then had people email me and call me up when the story became bigger to say, oh my God, you predicted it. Um, so for example, gold farming, which is the practice of, um, of uh, hiring people to uh, work in virtual worlds at very low wages, repetitively clicking to generate gold in worlds like World of Warcraft, which can then be sold to richer players on eBay and other places. I wrote a short story about someone who unionizes gold farmers and, um, uh, called Anda's Game. And as the gold farming story broke and broke again, because it's a good kind of crunchy technological human interest story, the, the, the vision of, of uh, you know, rooms full of uh, Chinese children being forced to play World of Warcraft for 16 hours a day to, to craft you know, shirts that can be sold for gold and then, and then uh, that gold in turn sold to uh, rich North Americans is really, it's, it's really crunchy. The news, the news stories like it. And, um, and as that happens, every time that happens, I get all this email telling me that I'm a, I'm a super duper predictorator of the future and I'm, I'm, I'm even better than Nostril Thomas. Uh, I've been kind of disappointed, you know, watching Cyberpunk never actually arrive, you know, being a big fan of Neuromancer and the metaverse and whatever, and, you know, as the web develops, realizing that, you know, 3D worlds are completely ridiculous, you know, it's, it doesn't depend on location at all, and looking at, like, Spook Country now, which is being written, you know, very much with current technology, uh, who's right, who is writing about you know, the future, you know, not based on what we're doing, you know, who's, you know, really looking forward. Well, I mean, I would argue that the people, even the people who claim that they're doing that, by definition, are trapped in their own biases. Um, I had a, I was on a panel about this with a, with a, a venerable science fiction writer, a great figure from the field, a guy named Robert Silverberg, uh, at the World Science Fiction Convention this year. And um, he, he called Robert Heinlein, Robert A. Timeline, 
because Heinlein used to fill the, the beginnings of his books with these timelines that were supposedly represented his rigorously extrapolated future of the world. Um, and it was silly, right? It was, it was you know, nine, 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 nine sigmas off what actually happened. So um, I don't know that there is anyone writing... Uh, stuff that's not based on the present. And I think cyberpunk was very much based on the present. Uh, cyberpunk was really about um, trying to understand whether in the future computers would control us or enable us to control the world better. Uh, and I think that that debate is still going on. I think that's the DRM debate in a nutshell. Do you, does your computer control you or do you control your computer? Science fiction is a really good way to... That's basically what you're saying, like to formulate a form of political critique in a certain way, because it's always about the present. Mm -hmm. So it can, I mean, I, 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 I started being a punk because I read cyberpunk. That's <laughs> like my personal story of the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think, what, uh, what could be the future? Uh, so we are going toward, uh, towards, like we're moving to a world where there's like, there's a possibility of the ending of, uh, of stuff, I call it that way. So if you don't need gold anymore, like there's a lot of talk about, about uh, nanotechnology. So mm -hmm. if you have nanobots going around and finding your gold uh, atoms, there's no need anymore for something like, like the, the hard capitalism. But there's, we're moving towards the world of like where uh, corporations try to control the information because the information, that's the really important thing about it, not like hard what's, what's like a table is made out of or what a watch is made out of. Uh, what do you think about that? So I expect that nanotech's going to be a lot weirder than anything that, that we dream up when we say, oh, well, nanotech is going to make, make gold irrelevant. I mean, gold is already, already irrelevant. We, we don't have gold-backed currencies anymore. Um, diamonds values are completely artificial. You know, the, the De Beers cartel just pulls diamonds out of the ground, sticks them in vaults to keep the rest of the diamonds' prices up. So it's like, well, what happens when we can fabricate perfect diamonds? It's like, well, it's not like there's a shortage of diamonds, right? There's just a cartel. Um, I, I heard uh, someone from the British Phonographic Institute uh, describing, he was, he was uh, meeting with a group of other industrial people, and he was saying, you know, you people, you all make fun of us in the record industry, you know, you see, we're hopeless dinosaurs, but you just wait until 3D printers are everywhere, and then you're going to all be where we are, because every business that depends on patents and trademarks is going to fall by the wayside as soon as the 3D printer's on the desktops of the world. And my, my friend turned to me and he said, well... It's kind of cool and prescient to hear like a record executive talking about 3D printers. That's pretty forward-looking. And I said, yeah, but he thinks the major effect of them is going to be to end trademark. Right? That's like saying the major uh, outcome of the development of the railroad will be that the people who make the bags that horses eat oats out of are all going to go out of business. I mean, it's true, but it's hardly the major thing to worry about in the advent of the railroad. It's not the, the big change that's wrought on society as a result of, the, of railroading. So I, I think that um, it's going to be a lot weirder, but I think that our anxiety about the future of nanotechnology doesn't really have a lot to do with gray goo, because we're really a long way off from nanoassemblers, right? From, from nanoscale nanoassemblers that work efficiently and take stuff apart. And all this business about, oh, well, we're going to develop the framework now so it'll work later. It's like, we're going to develop the framework now for multi-threaded computing on the OS, you know, on, on OS 400 so that in 25 years when they develop the, you know, the, the latest iteration of the Pentium, we'll be able to apply it. It's ridiculous, right? It, it will, that anything we develop now will be um, only interesting in the theoretical way that, like, you know, uh, that uh, Turing's infinite paper tape is interesting. 
to the people who have functional nanocomputers. Um, but what it does reflect is the anxiety about the infinite copyability of, of information. Um, and it's, it's best understood as a metaphor about that when we say, oh, gosh, what will we do when anyone can, can produce anything um, on their desk with, nano, with nanites and currency ends and so on? It has a lot to do with the end of scarcity of information and with the, um, the uh, creation of uh, markets for um, goods that no one can make any sense out of. So there was just this run on the banks in Britain, uh, Northern Rock, one of the great British banks, uh, looked like it was going to go under. There were queues around the block by every one of these branches of people who were sure that the bank was about to go under, who wanted to take their life savings out. It was like, you know, the Great Depression. And the Exchequer had to step in with billions of pounds and guarantees to, to say that it wouldn't go under. And the reason that Northern Rock was in trouble is that none of the other banks would give them a reconciliation loan. And banks, in the UK at least, loan each other money every night to make sure that they, their books balance every night. You banks basically can't lock the doors for the night unless they've got as much money in their, on their inside as they have on their outside, uh, on their in-chart column as they do on their out column. Otherwise, they, they're, you know, they're insolvent. And so banks uh, normally just make these loans every night to each other. And you know, one night this bank is up you know, 17 billion pounds, and this bank is down 9 billion pounds, and they just sort of even it out. But the banks understand that all of them are these days tying up enormous amounts of capital, possibly fatal amounts of capital, in exotic instruments that no one can make any sense out of. So um, uh, mostly this relates to the subprime mortgage uh, market, where you have people going around to people who have, who have no money and can't afford to buy a house, especially in an overinflated real estate market, and saying, let us uh, give you the money to buy a house. You're, you're a terrible risk. And then they take that mortgage, you know, half a million pounds over, 10, over 30 years, and then they break that up into 10,000-pound parcels, and they sell them to people for 8,000 pounds. And then new brokers take those 8,000-pound parcels, and they put a million pounds worth of them together, and then break those up into 10 parcels again. And then they trade those. And then they trade futures on those. So that's a bet about whether the value of these parcels is going to go up or down. And then they trade derivatives of futures of those, which is essentially a bet on whether or not bets about these parcels of parcels of divided bad debt are going to go up or down. And this is where the majority of the capital for these banks are tied up. So we we have an economy that is like um, currently based essentially on people rolling dice and generating random numbers and betting on tulip bulbs. And um, it's unsurprising that when we start talking about nanotechnology, people go, well, won't the economy collapse when all the important commodities are suddenly rendered nonsensical? It's like, well, yeah, welcome to the economy. That's, that's, the, that's the thing that we're worried about. It's not the future in which potatoes can be produced at the press of a button. It's the present in which um, gold and real estate and all other markets have been replaced by exotic derivatives that no one, including the people who trade them, understand. Okay, so the one thing that seems to be continuing to come through is, is that we're moving from an economic of scarce, economics of scarcity into basically abundance, and the various industries are simply having a difficult time coming to terms with that. When you mentioned the information uh, economy and the people trying to think that they could buy and sell information, and that would be the basis of the business, that, of course, DRM is the result and a way of trying to maintain scarcity. Um, is anybody... Are there any industries out there with a clue? Yeah, that you've sure. run into. I mean, who? Obviously, the music industry is clueless. Right. Um, where Where is the cluefulness? 
Well, there are lots of sub-industries emerging within the industry, so it's, and, I, and I don't think it would ever be otherwise. That It's probably naive to think that the entire record industry was going to pick up and change, but what would probably and, and more likely happen is that um, significant participants in the record industry would suddenly go, oh, yeah, no, um, suing our fans, bad. No, okay, you guys go keep doing that. See you later. Um, I'm going to be over here not suing my fans. Um, and, uh, and there seems to be uh, more and more of that. And what's really interesting are the people who are picking up some of the slack who are historically part of the um, industry uh, but not the part that relies on scarcity like, uh, or, or artificial scarcity or restricting copying like um, concert promoters. So Madonna has just laid off her record label and hired a concert promoter. What's really interesting about concert promoters is the more copies there are of Madonna's music, the more money they make. Right? If there, if there are uh, heptillion copies of Madonna's music, if the demand reaches that point, then the price of Madonna concert tickets can go up to some extremely large number. Right? And, and so the concert promoters make more money. So is it surprising that Madonna has contracted with a concert promoter to, to uh, produce and, and, and distribute her recordings? Well, of course not. Right? They, these people are in the business of capitalizing on abundance in recordings. That's what concert promotion is. It's capitalizing on abundance in recordings. Historically, we've traded real abundance in recordings by, uh, uh, for uh, some profit from selling the recordings. But if you can make up that profit um, by just throwing away the scarcity, then, then you know, by all means, away you go. Um, all those people who are doing um, uh, advertising-based businesses on the Internet, whatever you feel about advertising and how invasive it is or not invasive it is, those people are essentially embracing a world in which more copying makes them more money. Uh, more reading makes them more money. More traffic makes them more money. Anyone who's got a full-text RSS feed, I think, is living in the post-scarcity universe. Uh, I guess. Uh, thank you very much, Corey Doctorov. Feeling the dark. big non-predictor. <laughs>